My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Uh, Recently, I bought a locking gas cap for my motorcycle. And my theory is only the paranoid survive. And so, um, you know, I just, I just thought I'm going to get a locking gas cap. And I kid you not, as I was unboxing it, and, you know, there's instructions on a locking gas cap. You'd think it'd be easy, but they have to put instructions. I noticed these in black, bold, italic words. Never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. <laughs> and this is what I thought. What moron would ever get an open flame next to gasoline? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was in the hospital for that one. <clears throat> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're newer at sunrise. Every year, the Michigan Lawsuit Abuse Watch organization conducts a contest uh, to explain how the frivolous, frivolous lawsuits are actually changing our culture and how we now need common sense labels when we never used to need those. And, and so I've got some. I've shared these throughout the years. Here's a couple I think uh, that are just really funny. On a cocktail napkin that was at a bar in the Hilton Head area of South Carolina, on a napkin, a little napkin with the waterways of the bay. It says, caution not to be used for navigation. Now, that, somebody sued somebody over that one, right? When, and this is great. On a baking pan, oven, ovenware will get hot when used in the oven. Interesting. Uh, On a baby stroller, remove child before folding. (laughs) On a brass fishing lure with a three-pronged hook, harmful if swallowed. Okay, all right. On a popular scooter for children, this product moves when used. Okay. Now, again, think about this. Somebody got sued, and they had to put a caution label. Uh, On a toilet brush, do not use for personal hygiene. Uh, This is good, and I confess I have fallen prey to this. On a household iron, never iron clothes while they're being worn. Okay, anybody ever do that? Now as a bachelor, I mean, what are you going to do? You're like walking out, it's like, oh, I got just throw the iron on. That's not good. Um, This one, though, I I do not understand this. On a hairdryer was the warning, never use hairdryer while sleeping. Okay, all right. On a cardboard sunshield that keeps the sun off the dashboard was this warning, do not drive with sunshield in place. Uh, This one's fun. On a fireplace log, one of those manufactured logs, caution, risk of fire. Okay. Oh, how about this one? On a letter opener. My wife could not believe this until I showed her. Caution, safety goggles recommended. A couple more. This is good. This is amazing. On a vanishing fabric marker where the words should not be used as a writing instrument for signing checks or any other legal documents. 
And finally, the, the one that won the top grand prize was on a small tractor where the words, danger, avoid death. It's like, that's good. That's like one of my life goals is avoiding death, right? Now, it seems, obviously, in our litigious culture and society that common sense isn't so common. And when it doesn't work out the way we think it should work out, we get mad and we sue people, right? We've seen this. This is just an example or a few examples of how we as a culture think we figured out the world and what doesn't work the way we want it to, we don't understand. And we get mad and we go to court and we sue because of spilled coffee or we sue because of, you know, just what people have done. And we do this. We sue neighbors because of fence lines. We sue, you know, businesses. We sue sue employees. We sue employers. We are a sue happy culture because we have figured out, at least in our little minds, that this is how life should work out. And when it doesn't, We don't take that on the chin. We go after somebody else's chin, right? Now imagine this. I was thinking about this last week. What would happen if we could sue God? Can you imagine if mankind could actually take God to court? I'm not talking about Miracle on 34th Street, taking Santa Claus, you know, to court kind of thing. I'm talking about really, there are so many people that are angry at God. And I've shared this before, and and it doesn't make sense to me, but I run into atheists that are angry at God. They are so mad at God that therefore God doesn't exist because life didn't work out. Life was filled with brokenness and pain and incredible hurt. And as a result, we end up being so angry at God, we just deny his existence because we cannot live with that tension. Or we go around with a bitter heart. Imagine if we could take God to court because my marriage didn't work out the way I thought it would. We could take God to court because my goals didn't work out the way I had prayed. I mean, you could just list all the ways we are disappointed with God. And we've been in this series on Ecclesiastes, and in the last couple of weeks, it's been pretty dark and depressing, and I'm actually surprised anybody's shown up a church anymore, um, because it is the reality of the fact that all our hopes and dreams are not promises by God. And even in church, we sit here, and it's so easy for us. We, we think we get a pass because we're Christians, right? We don't get a pass. We're human beings. And in your heart and my heart, there are disappointments. There are frustrations. And as we've said week after week in this series, Ecclesiastes, somehow even we as followers of God get a heart, get a mindset that says, well, I go to church. I I go to Bible study. I go to small group. I say my prayers. I give in the offering. I serve. I do those things. So therefore, God, you owe me. And even followers of Christ, Christ can get bitter and hurt in their heart. And we can get frustrated because after all of this I've done for you. Now, you know, I scratch my head because if you've actually followed Christ for any long period of time, for me, my spiritual birthday of 40 years is coming up in December. And I will tell you this, I was young and naive for a decade. And then I realized it's not going to work out the way I think God should work it out. And then becoming a pastor and decades later and decade after decade realizing that even I have this in my heart. 
others have this in my heart. Pastoral counseling people who are bitter at God, mad at God, disappointed at God, angry at God because of life's hurts. Thinking that we get a free ride. We get a fast pass to the front of the line, right? And we can just somehow skip all the pain and the hardship. And Ecclesiastes has been a reminder that just the fact that the human blood flows through us, tainted with sin and brokenness, that is a reminder that none of us get a free ride. Now, we know, of course, and we talk about this, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, God changes our heart, our life, our soul. He gives us a brand new existence. He gives us eternal life. We've talked about how that changes us, and hopefully it changes our perspective on the pain in life. It should, right? But we still have pain. I mean, hopefully none of us signed up for following Jesus because it was going to be easy. I mean, I remember hearing that at times. Just follow God and your life will get better. That's a lie. It gets worse many times because now you have an enemy that's actually after you. The devil himself is, puts a target on you, right? And he wants to destroy and defeat you to get you off the path of following Jesus, to sideline you. And so you now have even more difficulties at times. But of course, you have God's spirit living inside of you. And you have this confident assurance that you are a son. You are a daughter of a heavenly father. And you are following Jesus, the son who came to live a perfect life, to set a path for us. But more than that, mostly, really, it's what we all are about is to die for our sins and to come back to life again and prove that. And so there is a hope that we have. There is a confidence that we have. But you and I walk the same journey as everyone else. But internally, we are the ones that can go tell people outside that are hurting and that are broken, that are mad, that are angry, that are disappointed, that are frustrated. There is a hope. And you can get a new perspective on how God could take even the worst of the worst scenario and turn it around to bring a life change. And some of you have those stories. I mean, I, I've sat with you, I, you know, I've sat several of you recently and talked and listened and and one even on video we're going to show here hopefully in a couple weeks is that all of the pain and all the suffering of life actually opened the door of my heart to God. That God can take the worst thing that's ever happened to you. We talk about this in our recovery ministry over and over again that the thing that we wish we could just run from and hide from the thing that we wish never happened to us that we could just go bury in the backyard six feet under is the very thing God wants to bring up, resurrect, get out, clean up, put into the light, heal, so that then we are an object of his grace to other people who need that grace. We have AA and NA here on Saturday nights. We have all of our recovery groups on Thursday nights. We've got some other groups going on throughout the week. But those are examples of people who are saying, yeah, I've got all that hurt and pain, but here's what God has done in me and through me, and now I can be a light to someone else. And Ecclesiastes has been a constant reminder that we don't get a pass on pain. And, and I would hope and pray that we're not going through an experience like Job. But even if you do, where you lose everything, you could still stand there and say, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. God gave it. God took it away. But I'm going to keep my eyes and focus on him. Now, because Ecclesiastes has been so depressing, because it's been so dark, um, this next section of scripture, I decided to do something a little different with it. It's a long text. I decided to pull out just a few pictures that I thought would be a little more encouraging. So this is not going to be like a super deep sermon, okay? Uh, there's going to be some great application. 
it's going to be a little more light. But what Solomon does in this next section of scripture in chapters 9 into 10 is he uses a few really cool common pictures, illustrations. He actually uses living creatures to explain a truth about wisdom. And so I'm going to pull out three of them. And then I'm going to pull out an inanimate object, and we're going to close, all right? So I think you're going to like it. I loved it as I was working through it. He's going to challenge us about our wisdom, and he's going to talk about flies. He's going to talk about snakes, and he's going to talk about birds, all right? Now, each of these small, seemingly insignificant creatures can actually destroy our lives, or as the metaphor goes, what that does to us. So I'm just going to jump through these and a lot lot different than what we've been doing and the depth we've been going in Ecclesiastes, but I think it's time just to come up for air a little bit and breathe and laugh. So uh, we're going to look at the fly. This is what he says. There's a lot of scripture where, you know, we're we're losing out on in 9 and 10, but you can catch it. You got a Bible. Wisdom from the fly. As dead flies cause even a bottle of perfume to stink, so a little foolishness spoils great wisdom and honor. It's kind of a pithy saying. You know, Solomon's the guy that wrote most of Proverbs. And this is exactly what you would find in the book of Proverbs. And so in this text, he's throwing in some of these Proverbs. Now, I don't know chronologically if this was before or after, or or this was like some extra stuff he forgot and he found on a parchment somewhere. I don't really know. And I can throw that into my new book. But here is what he's talking about. Think about a fly. Now, does this sound like anything? Does this sound like a familiar saying? like a fly in the ointment? Because this is exactly where that comes from in our culture. A fly in the ointment. When we use that phrase, a fly in the ointment, we're saying that we've got something great and just a little fly ruined the whole thing, right? Uh, it, you know, you're sitting down for lunch and you got this great bowl of tomato soup. By the way, today was a perfect day for tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwiches, right? Stormy, stormy, stormy. It's a perfect day for that. And you're sitting down there and you're just ready to eat and you prayed your prayer and you've got everything and a fly lands in the middle of your tomato soup and you, it spoils the whole thing, right? Now, how many of you are like, it, you count, it's only there three seconds and you scoop the fly out. Anybody like that? Okay, how many of you are like, the whole bowl is being dumped out? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. I used to be like that, and then I just like, whatever. It's not going to kill me. At least it hasn't killed me yet, right? So here's what Solomon is saying. Obviously, with the metaphor, just as one fly can ruin the perfume. Now stop for just a minute, because that's the, the original part of this. A perfumer was someone who worked... Um, with their hands, worked like a chemist basically back in the day to create these beautiful smells. Now, we, we do that. We have cologne, we have perfume, but we also have daily showers. They didn't have such back in the day. And so it was really important to have great smell, great perfume, great cologne to put on to mask some of the smell, especially if you're going out, going to a party. And so perfumers were rare and they were wealthy people. And what they cranked out was beautiful and very necessary. And all of a sudden, all your work is ruined by a silly, foolish little fly that landed. So what Solomon is saying is this, just like a little fly can ruin the perfume or the oil or the ointment, a little foolishness can cancel out a lifetime of wisdom. Now, I don't like that, but I have to say I don't like it because I've seen it. I have seen people who have lived a life of wisdom, and in just a moment, 
seemingly throw it all away. I mean, I would even say this, that Solomon, whenever he's writing this, he's writing about himself, right? The wisest man ever to live on the planet. And somehow a little fly, which ended up not being a very little fly, worshiping another god or goddess, as we've seen, marrying another foreign wife, making a treaty instead of trusting in God, building up more military, buying more horses from Egypt, getting more gold and silver. Those were the flies in his ointment. And they ruined him to the point where Solomon actually went and offered sacrifices to these other gods and goddesses with his wife on uh, the, the little mount there that later Jesus would go and spend his time with. And one day will come again, the Mount of Olives. And he offered sacrifices to Molech, which we know from a historical standpoint, religious standpoint, is that would be a child, an infant sacrifice to the fires of Molech, detestable to God. Because God says all life is valuable. The point is, this, point is simply this. You and I, in all of our wisdom, and all of our life, if we're not careful, one foolish act can ruin it. In other words, it's easy to make us stink than create sweetness. Because a lot of sweetness can be ruined with a little stink, right? I mean, think about this. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, the fly, the quote-unquote fly, is a person. And we're thinking about that. One person's foolishness can destroy a lifetime of wisdom and actually can cause a lot of problems for other people. Don't point. Please don't point. But one person can cause all kinds of heartache for people, right? Maybe you've got someone like that in your family, maybe in your small group, maybe in your church. And, and you know, it, everything else is going well, but that one person keeps causing a stink. And you know how painful that is. Or perhaps a fly is a flaw in your character, and you have everything going well, but that anger, you just do not submit to God's spirit. And that anger just ruins your testimony. A secret sin, something that only you know about and God, and one day everybody realizes, well, that's what it was, because we kind of all smelled something. We just didn't know what it was. A little thing can ruin everything. Think about that in your life. A little fly can ruin the perfume or the ointment. Well, let's move away from the fly. Let's look at the snake. This is a good one. If a snake bites before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? I just sit there for a while on that one. Because I don't like snakes. I don't. I, and, and I've never charmed one. Okay. A fly, it's been in the ointment. It's been in the soup before. Now, think about this. In the culture of the Middle East, they actually don't allow this anymore. It's interesting. In India, they've outlawed snake charming. Not because it doesn't work, because it does work, because it's abusive to animals and it's very dangerous, okay? So that's what they've done, all right? So uh, back in the day, and you can see it on movies and all, they would actually charm snakes by their words, by their whisper, and they would find a way to entertain people with these cobras out of baskets who with a flute or with a word or with a song could almost entertain people, right? Now think about this. This is what Solomon is saying. Good skill, you should apply it, right? It's like if you don't do the charming and the snake strikes you, you're dead meat. And so here's what he's saying. Very, very simple wisdom, but it's beautiful. You have to apply your wisdom, and especially at the right time, because you can have all of the skill, you can have all of the intelligence, you can have all of the wisdom, but if you don't put it into practice— it can come back to bite you and to harm you. 
Wisdom and skill has no value if you don't use it at the right time. Now think about this. I think about this as followers of Christ, people that come to church. We know so much. And I I would argue that we know too much, meaning we're educated beyond our obedience, right? It's good to have knowledge, but what's better is actually living and applying it. Because we know what the Bible says about, and you just list the things. We know what the Bible says about money, right? We know what the Bible says about sexuality. We know what the Bible says about marriage. We know what the Bible says about integrity. We know what the Bible says about dating. We know what the Bible says about our tongue. I mean, we know what the Bible says. We go to church. We hear it all the time, right? We know what the Bible says. But it doesn't make any difference if we don't do it. If we don't actually apply what we know, we're like a snake charmer that gets bit by the snake and the career is over, the life is over, right? So here's the question. Is there an area, or probably better asked, what is the area in your life where you know the right thing to do, but you still don't do it? You know exactly what you're supposed to do, but for some reason you don't do it. Maybe out of fear, Maybe just out of desire, you do what you know you're not supposed to do. You have in God the strength to live out what he has said. I I think about this scripture. I was just talking to some pastors. I was up at Camp Tadmore, 53 uh, men, young men who are in pastor training. And I was sharing about some things. And we did a QA and a last night. And one of the questions revolved around actually doing this thing we were talking about with temptation. And I said, it's just hard no matter what. But can I remind you of a, just a little text that the Bible tells us in Titus that God has given us the power to say no. Do you realize that? Next time you're tempted... That because God's spirit lives inside of you, he has given you the power to say no. Now, that doesn't mean we say no, right? But he's given you everything you need to say no. But sometimes we just don't believe that. We believe that the temptation or the situation or the person or whatever it might be, the desire is so great that we just give in or we have to give in. But God has given us the power to say no. Because we know in our hearts and our minds that we should and can, but do we say no? That's the snake. Well, let's look at the bird. And again, this is kind of fascinating because this sounds pretty familiar. Never make light of the king, even in your thoughts. And don't make fun of the powerful, even in your own bedroom. Here it is. For a little bird might deliver your message and tell them what you said, right? We still say this thousands of years later. A little birdie told me right? It was just a little bird that somehow happened to be in the vicinity of your words, and that bird flitted, floated, flew around over to me and told me what you said, right? A little bird told me. Now, this is in the context of getting your head cut off by the king, right? I mean, because if if you were to say the wrong thing about a king, he could uh, make you one head shorter, right? And, and that would end your life. And that was a real, very real threat, okay? And maybe in politics we can talk about this or whatever, but, but just let's just think about it in life, you know? Our words matter. Our words really matter. And if we're not careful, our words will come back to haunt us. They'll come back to bite us, come back to destroy us. Just like dead flies, 
spoil the ointment. Little snakes kill a big person. A little bird can get you into trouble. But actually what really gets you into trouble is your tongue. Uh, back in the day in the military, in the Navy, what did they say? Loose lips. That's right. Sink ships. Don't you dare say where you are because they will torpedo us. Have you, have you seen this? This is kind of interesting, sad technology. I have a Fitbit. A lot of people have things like this, smartwatches, and um, <laughs> soldiers running. <laughs> this, is, this is kind of funny. We just don't think about what technology does for us. Soldiers running in secluded, hidden, secretive areas have been detected by the enemy because they just go onto their Facebook page and they see where they've been running. Isn't that crazy? The little technology that we forget is always listening or watching can actually reveal something about us. And bases have been attacked because people aren't thinking. They're just not thinking because a loose lip sank a ship. Uncontrolled words, my friends, uncontrolled thoughts, insensitive, thoughtless words can bring a lot of pain on people. And this is a hard one because we, we all probably say more than we should, right? We over-communicate. I know we all do that. I struggle with that. And it's in the right context. And somebody asks you this, and you're like, oh, what am I supposed to say? It, it, probably you live in that environment. I know I do. It's like, okay, hold on, stop. Who knows about this and doesn't? I, I know a lot as a pastor. Your pastoral staff here, and we know a lot of things. And, and we're in context and relationships where it's sometimes it's hard to, we, I, if you ask me a question about something or sometimes I'll just stand there and it's not because I'm lost. It's because I'm thinking, okay, is this information out yet? Does this, is this person supposed to know this? I don't think this, this is the wrong context. Okay. I don't know. You know, I just, I, it just, it's a struggle sometimes, but if all we do is just let our mouth fly, our lips control gossip and slander will destroy. And I would say that Gossip and slander have destroyed more churches than theological liberalism have. It's not about heresy. It's not about getting the Bible verse wrong. It's not about is Jesus God or not. It's about people not feeling loved, people feeling ostracized because of a loose tongue, sank a relationship. I learned this from a pastor friend, and he says this, um, don't mess with the peace of my church. I like that. Don't mess with the peace in my church. And he taught me a long time ago that I have to run to conflict or it will run me over. And so don't gossip at sunrise. Don't slander at sunrise because we deal harshly with that in a loving way. Because that's somehow an acceptable sin in a lot of churches. Somehow that's okay. But it's not okay. Because it will destroy relationships. So flies can ruin a lot. Just a little thoughtless, just a simple act can destroy so much. Snakes, great wisdom, are you doing it? Um, and birds, just be careful. The inanimate object, this is good. There's one more little metaphor. Using a dull axe requires great strength, so sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. Every once in a while you read the Bible and you go like, it's really, that's brilliant. You know, that's just like, that's really cool. I mean, just think about this. Let's say um, you're up, um, it's not chronologically true. You're up in Vernonia 50 years ago, okay? You're up and there's loggers everywhere, okay? We're not. That You can go up there, you can see old mills and stuff like that. They don't do that anymore up there. But they're logging. 
And this is the day when they've got these big, huge 12-foot saws. I mean, these are massive. And you see these guys up there, these burly, manly men, you know, in their red flannel. And they've got the beard. They're not hipsters. They're drinking, you know, real coffee. And they're up there. And they're cutting down this tree. And you're up there, and you're just standing there. You're watching. And, you know, you're trying to calculate where it's going to fall so it doesn't kill you. And you're watching. And they're just, man, they're, they're, at, they're going for this. And you're like, I just, I want to see how this works, you know. I've heard about these loggers up here, and I want to I want to catch a glimpse of it. I want to hear the crack. I want to hear the thud. I want to feel the earth bounce as that tree bounces down, right? And you're watching and you're watching and you realize those guys aren't making much progress. And so they're just sweating and they're like taking a break and they're just wiping the sweat off and the, you know, the mud off. And you go, hey, I got a question for you. When was the last time you sharpened that blade? And they're like, we don't have time to sharpen the blade. We're manly men. We cut down trees. You're like, but maybe, just maybe, if you stop for a few moments and sharpen the blade, you'd get through it faster. What are you, a city person? Get out of here, right? That's silly, right? But that's what Solomon is saying. Now think about this. How foolish would it be for you and for me not to keep growing in wisdom? To keep pressing in when it's not working and think that just more is going to make it work, right? Well, let's apply that. Common scenario, nobody sent me an email, okay, all right, your marriage is struggling, and I'm just going to say men, okay, we just keep doing the same thing, but it's not working, so you know what we do, let's just do more, because it'll work, right, no, you know, we have great marriage small groups here, we we have a class on Sunday morning, that's uh, love and respect, and it's great. And so if you need to sharpen the blade, stop, take some time to let wisdom come into your heart. Parenting, right? I mean, how many of you go, this is the easiest thing I've ever done? Raise your hands. Okay. All right, none of us, right? It's like, I don't know. And then different phases and stages are like, I thought I figured this out and now they grew and now I'm lost and I don't even know my kids anymore, right? Okay. Uh, work, school, this is... My paraphrase of what Solomon is saying, the best investment you can make is just to get better at what you're doing, to grow in wisdom in relationships. Let's say you're out sharing your faith, and that's hard for you. It's hard for me, right? It's a challenge. And, and you know what the best thing for me to do is to figure out how to share my faith and go do it. We did a class here uh, with staff. It's been a year and a half ago in the summer. And it was this great small group study by Greg Laurie, Pastor Laurie Harvest uh, Chapel, I think it is. And it was a six-week series, a DVD, where he taught about evangelism called Tell Someone. And it was amazing. And so many of us sharpened the blade. We sharpened the saw on evangelism. In fact, several of our folks not only saw, they got a brand new saw and they started sawing down. And within weeks of doing this study as a staff, people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ left and right. We're like, what's going on? Well, I just found I had a blade I didn't even know I was using and not using and, or sharpening it. I sharpened it. I learned some things in that. We started passing that material around small groups because the best thing we can do is get better at sharing our faith, right? But if we don't know how to do it, don't just keep doing the clunky stuff, right? You know? Back in the day, it was, hey, if you were to die tonight, you know where you're going to go? If you ask that question today, people don't care. It's the wrong approach. And we've talked about this. 
the, the, the narrative of culture has shifted and changed and the old methods of sharing the gospel no longer relate. They don't connect anymore. We've got to find ways to connect to people in the pain and the struggle that they're in right now, right? So in whatever area of your life, I, man, I, I buy books like crazy. I read like crazy. I go to conferences. I still listen to things. I try to improve so I can learn things about myself and others. Uh, Lene uh, Carver, she heads up our small group area. She, she'll be out there uh, around small groups. Don't get too close. She'll just grab you and get you in a small group. It's dangerous. And, um, and you'll just be sucked into people and relationships and love and Jesus, and you won't know what happened to you. But Lene sent me a text last night. I was coming down from uh, Lebanon, the mountain, and um, it was about this uh, podcast. It was an hour and nine minutes about something we had done on staff about personality. And she says, James, you'll love this and everything. So I started listening to it. An hour and nine minutes later, I was weeping, first of all, because it was so amazing. And I learned four or five things about me that I didn't know because this person was able to talk about it. And I went and told my wife, babe, I want you to listen to this about me because now you know why I'm so messed up, right? You know, my fears, my struggles. And then, then let's listen to the one about you and we can talk about how you're messed up, right? That's, that, I didn't quite say it that way. Um, are we growing? Solomon is asking. Are we maturing? Are we learning? Now, I, I want to say this. I think that we need to take the opportunity to do all of these. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. That's what Solomon has been teaching us in Ecclesiastes. Not to be a fool, but to be wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Uh, different translations say it differently. Uh, I remember one of them saying, redeem the time because the days are evil. Now, here's, here's a fascinating thing. In the original language the New Testament was written in Greek, there were a couple words for time. And one is Kronos. And we know what Kronos is because we have chronographer, we have clocks. Kronos is a company. Okay, uh, uh, Kronos is clock time, minutes, right? But there's another word for time, and that's the one that Paul uses here. It's Kairos. And it, it means opportunity time. So a Kronos is a minute, a Kairos is a moment, right? Now this is, this, this, this is like, this is worth the price of, you know, enduring the sermon right now. You have, and every one of us, we have chronos minutes. And we all have the same 24 hours, seven days, 365 a year. We get that, right? We all have the same minutes. And, and we schedule our life and structure our life by minutes. But what Paul is saying is this. In the midst of all the minutes, don't forget the moments that God wants to use in you and through you to reach someone else and to do something significant. That, that right there, my friends, this week, we have seven days till Easter, right? We have minutes. Will you take the moments to prepare your heart? We've been going through Lent. We have Good Friday. Those are moments. Now, they started a minute at 7 o'clock, but in that minute, in that hour and a half or whatever it is, there are going to be opportunity moments. There are going to be moments, kairos moments, where God could do something in your heart. If you came to our Ash Wednesday service, those were moments, moments. I had people who have said to me, 
who, who do this all the time. And that's a little different for, you know, Baptistic people to do Ash Wednesday and Lent. But they said, this was better than I've ever seen it before. Pastor Jack was a key part of leading that, our children's pastor. Those were moments. People are still hanging on those moments. Good Friday's coming up. Is it just going to be another day? Or will you gather together? We gather together and have a moment where we remember what Christ did for us. Easter. It's, it's a minute, but it's a moment. And can I say this, and I'll close. The opportunity that you have to bring someone. Andrew Palau is speaking at Sunrise Church. He's done it before. Luis has spoken before. And we know this. Kevin's spoken before. We know this, that every time a Palau shows up, people come to Jesus. It's just in the air, right? Because they're gifted in evangelism. So take a minute Take a minute, but more than that, take advantage of the opportunity, the moment to reach out in faith, encourage, and say, hey, I want to invite you to church on Easter. Luis shared this on the video last week. It's on Facebook. Go to our Facebook page. Look at Luis's video. It's just a couple minutes inviting us to invite people to Easter because he reminds us of the high probability of people Protestants, Catholics, the nuns, they would come to church at Easter because it's still an accepted time to come. Take advantage of the opportunity, the Kairos moment this week. And also maybe as you go out and you grab the sermon and the discipleship questions, take some opportunity time to let God evaluate your life when it comes to flies and snakes and birds and axes. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for these moments, these opportunity moments. And this one right here is church, a weekend service. Though you could speak to us and do a work in our heart. I pray that this week and the days to come, in boldness, we'd reach out by faith and we would invite family, friends, neighborhood associates, co-workers, whatever it might be, fellow students, to come to church. And, and somebody might say no, but they might say Yes. And if they say yes, they'll come in there hear a gospel message in a clear, compelling way through Andrew. And they will be invited to respond, as so many have. Give us the boldness to take the moment to do that, we pray in your name. Amen.